Hey, what's everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. A podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. What up, everybody? Ryan, what's good, dude? Good morning, friends and listeners and comrades. Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. Yeah, it's morning for us at least, which is weird. We usually don't do this in the morning. No, we don't. Uh, we had to move some things around in our schedule this week, and I, for one, am filled to the brim with uh, fresh Czech-style kolaches. So right. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm ready to podcast. Yeah, but if this sounds different, it's because the coffee's still flowing, and uh, we're waking up still. I'm waking up still. Uh, our, our brains are perhaps not as awake as they usually are, to be yeah. sure. Which is ironic, because we've been up for like since 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we went to the, uh, if any of you St. Teresa men are out there, get your rear ends down. To the Catalyst Group. Happens at 6 a.m. Yeah. What else are you going to do? At, so you're not, you don't have anything else going on at 6 a.m. That's Come right. On. Go to Catalyst. It's actually mm-hmm. crazy. So we weren't even planning on talking about this. But I actually, one of the things I do, I was really pleasantly surprised by when I first started working here, was just like how big the men's group is. Like yeah, it's, it's serious. It, it's huge. There's like mm-hmm. 70 dudes. Um, and you can tell everybody's excited to be there. Right. And it's all, it's pretty much all lay led, which, yeah. which is great. You don't feel like... Um, the priests are twisting anybody's arm to get up there and do the thing. Um, yeah. So it's it's really cool. So any Catalyst guys, uh, this is your free marketing uh, from Catholics with Bibles. Yeah, so. y'all are welcome. <laughs> You're Appreciate welcome. It. Appreciate it. We'll take a five buck a referral deal for every new member you get from the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we need to work out some kind of exchange here. That would be, that would be promo great. code Catholics with Bibles. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, very cool. Yeah, so excited today. We're, we're almost done with the unseen realm. We got two sections left. Um, if, you, if you're just now tuning in with us today, The Unseen Realm is a book by Michael Heiser. He's an evangelical, non-denob biblical scholar who lo- works for Logos Bible Software, and the book is about recovering the often neglected supernatural elements of the Bible. His thesis is basically, if you come across something in the Bible that's weird, that means it's important, and we ought to pay attention to it. Yeah, and so, yeah, as we've been journeying uh, through this, this is your first time jumping on, uh, then we're, today is the first day we're diving into New Testament stuff. Um, and so, yeah, and so throughout this book, um, the reason we're doing it, I know the show is called Catholics with Bibles, but as Catholics, we shouldn't be afraid or scared to read non-Catholic material. Um, that being said, I say that after you've had a decent amount of like Catholic intellectual formation. So you can kind of see the difference and, and pull the good out of the material, right? So like um, there's a biblical uh, scholar called N.T. Wright. He's not Catholic. But man, a lot of his stuff is awesome, right? Yeah. Or like Davies and Allison. They're another powerhouse, yeah, right? Allison's, Allison's great, yeah. And, yeah. Ha- and how fortunate for N.T. Wright that his, um, initi- that his name is actually New Testament Wright. That's right, um, yeah. You know, <laughs> given, the sc- <laughs> given the scholarship that he does. That's right. Uh, so we, yeah, we're big fans of N.T. Wright. We like Dale Allison. We like these folks who uh, are in impaired communion with the Catholic Church, but oftentimes... Um, not always, but often accidentally uncover these beautiful truths of the Catholic mm-hmm. faith and help us see our faith in a new light. We're grateful for it. Yeah, but like I said, it's, this is coming after the after you study Catholic philosophy and theology because sometimes the mistake can happen where if you if you just dive into a lot of non-Catholic material, um, you can fall into some intellectual or philosophical traps that you might not even realize are intellectual or philosophical traps or problems. Yeah, yeah. Learn how to doggy paddle before they before you <laughs> right. go off the high dive. That's you know right. what I mean? Yeah, I actually just started, I don't know if I told you this. Um, I started reading uh, The God Delusion by Dawkins. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, hey, 2005, what's happening? What's up? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, um, but as somebody who like has 
dove pretty deep into theistic apologetics and philosophy and all Aquinas and all these things, I read him and I'm like, dude, this is a load of garbage. Um, and so <laughs> it, it also just annoys me that he's very like snarky and sarcastic throughout the entire book, essentially. Um, but at the same time, like you, when you read it, uh, his syllogism does follow to, to a certain degree, like pretty well, like his logic follows. Um, obviously our premises are just very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but it's one of those things I can read that as somebody who doesn't really struggle with this reality of, you know, doubting God's existence, but also having studied a decent amount of philosophy to see where his, uh, the holes are in his argument. Right? Yeah. I, re- I read a lot of Sam Harris in high school. Uh, um, same, similar sort of guy. He has more of a journalistic background than a scientific one, but I, I remember thinking it's remarkable how little these guys understand how myth and literature and religion. Right. And so like it's it's sort of like um, it was the exaltation of STEM before that mm. was a cool thing to do. You right. know, like this is the only means by which we can see the world, and um, it's necessarily truncated and yeah. silly. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like, if, and if you ever hear this argument of people trying to disprove God by showing like apparent contradictions in the Old Testament, or how so like. You know, Dawkins, one of the first things he does is like, look how awful the God of the Old Testament is, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, God's not real. And I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's a, these are different arguments. <laughs> like, this is not, that that was a jump in logic. And and, and doesn't it strike you, Mr. Dawkins, that uh, have you ever wondered if any Christians have dealt with these questions <laughs> That's before? right. You Crazy. Know? We yeah. have for about 2,000 years. <laughs> right. um, but anyway, so um, we'll dive into to what we're talking about today. Like I said, get into New Testament stuff. Um, so we got a Greek word of the day coming at you. Our Greek word of the day. And uh, Chase, this is where our training is going to come into conflict. We're going to have a massive spiritual conflict here. Can't wait. Um, but the, the Greek word of the day is, uh, is nephma, but you've probably heard it said pneuma. That's right. Um, in my training, the uh, epsilon, upsilon, sound um, is a diphthong which makes a F sound um, which is just one of those and weird what, tricks and, of the trade. And my training is saying you're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember Rob Bell and the NUMA videos? Oh yeah, we actually had to stop. We use those um, on retreats uh, to like segue into more serious parts of retreats, mm-hmm. but we actually had to stop using them um, because he went all off the deep end there. Yeah, yeah. I think now he's on the Oprah Network. Right, um, which which shows the great heights that that one can achieve. In yeah, this business. so he, he he turned into. So for those that aren't familiar with him, at first he was just kind of like a non denominational preacher kind of guy, but then he went super universalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those that don't know what that means, it means that he he believes that every single person is saved, like in the world by the merits of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, what religion, you're everyone's saved, and mm-hmm. that's like super problematic for basically any Christian. Theologian and line of thought, but it's great if you're looking for an Oprah, Oprah. Concept, yeah, yeah. If you're just trying to make people it. feel warm and fuzzy, mm-hmm. and then it's, I guess, go for it. But yeah, yeah, that dude's just swimming in a gold-filled jacuzzi, Scrooge McDuck style. Now, I actually just saw a post. There's an evangelical pastor online who claims that Jesus hasn't come back for a second second coming because his congregation hasn't donated enough. Hey, like he literally said it, like just like that. Like you haven't donated enough, and that's why Jesus hasn't come back. Reverend Bill needs a brand new jet. Essentially. It's like his mansion while he's recording this this video and stuff. But uh, but anyway, don't watch Televangelist, please. Don't watch Joel Osteen. <laughs> unless it's for fun. Yeah, unless you want like, just a good laugh. Um, but yeah, so the the kind of one of the themes uh, for Heiser uh, throughout the Old Testament, or the New Testament that we're getting into today, 
throughout the Old Testament, he, he really loved talking about the spiritual warfare element, this uh, divine counsel element of the Old Testament. And he's trying to bring that into the New Testament, uh, for better or for worse. Um, Ryan and I were chatting before the show. In this section, we don't like disagree with a whole lot of what he says. There's one part where we really disagree. Yeah, with we're gonna we're really yeah. gonna needle him on one yeah. section here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but most of it is just we're, we feel like he's putting uh, the emphasis in the wrong syllable, right? So he's just. Um, I think it's it, it's good to see the spiritual warfare element of the New Testament. I think that's a great way to read the New Testament and the Old Testament. Uh, but I don't know if it's uh, the primary way we should necessarily. And this is just my opinion, honestly. This isn't like dogmatic or anything like that. Um, I think it's a cool way to read it. Um, I've enjoyed reading the, old, the New Testament that way. Um, but really in, in this section, he's talking about the inbreaking of the kingdom, right? Because where the king is, there is his kingdom. And so with the incarnation of, of Yahweh figure, when Heiser's word, Jesus, right? The word of God. Um, we have this idea of, you know, God being like, all right, Satan, let's tussle. Let's, mm-hmm. let's go at it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, which is cool. I mean, yeah, he. Uh, this is in chapter thirty-two here. If you're reading, reading along in the book, but he talks about a couple of instances wherein we can clearly see that I, I think, and this is not his. Uh, this terminology is not unique to him, but he talks about how a beachhead has been established. Yeah. Um, the uh, the evil powers that run the world are being put on notice, particularly in the beginnings of Jesus's ministry. So uh, he talks about the first exorcism, which is ever recorded in the Bible, is of course particular to Jesus's ministry. He talks about the Wait, does he say it's the first one ever recorded? He does. Yeah. But that's not true. In the Old Testament, King Solomon and King David perform exorcisms. Um That's interesting. I didn't yeah. I, I must have totally just missed that part. I didn't I didn't compute it. Yeah, he, he says it's the first time it's ever happened. Whoa, that's just totally not true. When you read Chronicles, it talks about David and literally if you just read the story of David and Saul, when David performed music, he drove out evil spirits. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And yeah. and uh, Saul is out in the wilderness for a while, and he lets his hair grow long, uh-huh. and he starts, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, oh, I, yeah I so, do remember that, that. That's part of uh, the Christological foundation of, of, the, of the Davidite of, of Jesus, is that he's perfecting the high priestly role of the Davidic king, right? Mm-hmm. The Davidic king b- mm-hmm. being one who could perform exorcisms. Maybe his point was that this is like God himself doing it. But in, in any case, it's yeah. overstated to say it's the first Right, right, exorcism. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he talks about um, Jesus founding the church on Peter and the gates of hell not prevailing against it and brings out a thing that I think we miss often, which is that the gates, uh, think about gates here, gates on a city, gates on your house or whatever in your, in your neighborhood, they are, these are a defensive yeah. measure. Yeah, so this is actually a, a, a passage we want to zoom in on a little bit because um, if you've ever talked to non-Catholics about this, this passage in uh, Matthew 16 um, of, of, you know, you are Peter and upon this rock I, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, in all fairness, there are a couple of interpretive options for this passage, right? Um, when it, you know, as Catholics, it's, it's, we want to lean towards the whole, oh, Peter's talking, or Jesus is talking to Peter, and this is the establishment of, of him as, as Pope, right? Um, which is a, a I, I like that interpretive option. I think it's, it's great. Um, I don't think it's the only place where we can look to for the primacy of Peter. Uh, in fact, when you read the entire New Testament all the way from Acts, the primacy of Peter, I think, comes forth better in other places, right? Mm-hmm. That was just the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are like a different interpretive options to what this passage could be about. Some better, some worse. Heiser's is kind of like, it's cool. Um, it's not bad. 
basically all Heiser says is he points out that the location they were at was the uh, the historic place of like some demon worship, essentially, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in the event of the transfiguration. So the location of the transfiguration is, is important for Heiser because this was a place that was long considered to be a, a haunt of jackals, a haunt That's of right. demonic activity. And so Jesus, by doing all of these spiritual warfare bits at the beginning of his ministry, is signaling to us, uh, the readers, that the uh, the powers of hell are being put on notice and that God is um, establishing a new sort of spiritual beachhead in the world through which to take back uh, his kingdom. Yeah, so basically how Heiser reads, uh, you are Peter and upon this rock I build my church, he just, he just changes... He kind of he pulls a very classic kind of like Protestant move of changing the direction of Jesus's words. Um, so as a Catholic, you'd read that passage and say, "Oh yeah, Jesus is talking to Peter." He says, "Upon you are Peter, and upon this rock I build my church," namely referring to Peter Petros. Literally, his name means rock. Um, but what Heiser does is uh, Jesus is referring to this rock as the mountain on which they're standing. Um, upon this this rock, this mountain, I will now establish my kingdom. And he points to the gates of hell because. The location he's at is arguably the historic, you know, quote unquote, gates of hell. Like if this is the, the demon worship spot, right? And so for Heiser, he says, no, 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 it's a, he's not talking to Peter. He's saying that this, this is the place where the church is now beginning, transfiguration, all these things, um, which is like, it's okay. I think it, it, it's not wrong. Right, you could you could certainly believe that and believe that Peter is the rock. On right, which the yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, right. this is when as Catholics we believe in what's called the multiple literal sense, and it's something that Aquinas really coined. Um, and so it's something that Protestants really don't like. Um, but as Catholics, we we have no problem with it. So basically, you know, Aquinas would say that that one passage or one verse can literally mean multiple things, and I don't think we like that as like Americans or just Western people in general. Um, but yeah, one passage can mean multiple things literally right um because of the gravity of god the 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 infinite knowledge of god and all these things so i think this is probably an example of that does that belong to the first sense of the four senses of scripture can that second literalism there yeah so um it can so and that's the thing Aquinas would say you have to figure out what it's literally talking about with the original context and that's some which is important yeah but it can literally be also referring to the moral sense the ontological sense i mean Mm -hmm. all these other things Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. um and so, and that's the thing, Heiser is trying to get to the literal original sense, um, which you can argue, you know, because I don't know if I have a strong opinion on the matter of the original sense of this passage. I, I think he's, he's talking to Peter, well, he is talking to Peter, right? I, I don't think the evidence is really there without reading too much into the text of like, oh, I'm talking about the mountain and not the man. <laughs> like, I think you're reading into the text a little bit at that yeah. point. Yeah, uh, though I think we do agree with his overall point yeah, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. The, about the spirituality, uh, about it's maybe anachronistic to say Christian spirituality, but but sure. about the the kingdom of God breaking in in this new way through the ministry of Jesus. Yeah, because the the gospel, the evangelion, is an, is is offensive, right? It's it, like he says, beachhead, right? So the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Meaning that our job as Christians is to beat down, beat them down, the gates of hell, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, in this world, and to and to, it's the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, right? Mm-hmm. It's the spreading of the kingdom and reconquering the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one way that happens, particularly in the New Testament, and is in a cool way, is on this issue of Pentecost, reversing yeah. what happened in the Tower of Babel. 
So I uh, actually asked Chase about this before the show, if a lot of people knew about this or if y'all would think it was dull or old news or something. But uh, there's some pretty clear thematic links in the New Testament which make clear that what happens in Pentecost with people speaking in different tongues and people who don't speak those tongues being able to understand it, that is, tongues meaning languages, uh, that this is a reversal, a real reversal of the scattering and the confusing of languages that happened at the Tower of Babel, which fits into Heiser's whole theme pretty nicely, I think. Yeah, yeah, and so that's something, I remember I learned, I think when I was studying this formally, I don't know if I learned it beforehand, but yeah, so, you know, obviously... God, when he originally made the world, there was one language, there was unity, but then their pride caused them to try to build a tower to God, right? The, the ziggurat or whatever it's called, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then God scattered them and, and scattered their language and confused their language, I should say. Um, and so, yeah, so the, this Pentecostal image, uh, not like Pentecostalism, but like Pentecost, um, <laughs> this, 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 this image of now God is reunifying the world, right? Through his spirit. Um, one thing, that I remember when I was when I was first like had my reversion, I was uh, on the charismatic side of the Catholic world. Yeah, um, sure. So this whole like praying in tongues thing and like looking pointing this passage, you'd be like, see, they prayed in tongues, they spoke in tongues, and it wasn't until I studied like more like biblical theology and been like, yeah, it, it just means they spoke in different languages. Yeah, like, it's, <laughs> that were intelligible. Yeah, Hello. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and even Saint, and then they point to Saint Paul. Yeah. Um, he's like, oh, you need an interpretation an interpreter of tongues, like in, in the literal sense of as in somebody who speaks the language mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so i'm not trying to like offend or insult anybody who's like charismatic if you if you speak in tongues like like thanks be to god yeah that's terrific yeah uh, the 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 bible and the and the church have set up some pretty clear um boundary markers and guidelines for how that should work yeah so uh and basically i'm just encouraging you to, to dive deep into non-charismatic sources and seeing all sides of that scriptural interpretation. So um, I'm not, like I said, I'm not against it, but I just remember when I really understood what the passage is literally saying, I was just like, oh. There's an unhelpful tendency among folks of that stripe to make like the gift of tongues the end-all be-all of Christian spirituality. Like if you aren't doing it this way like this, then you really should wonder if you aren't a Christian. Uh, But the, uh, the New Testament's quite clear that Jesus gives different gifts to different people. And tongues is at the bottom of the totem pole as in mm-hmm. like the least important thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's cool and flashy, but uh, yeah. it's not for everybody. When I remember this, hearing this story about uh, Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta, and she was giving a talk in Russia during the communist days. And uh, so she didn't speak Russian. And she was giving the speech in, oh, what was her native language? Whatever her native language was, I forget. It wasn't English. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so she was giving the talk and obviously the commies being the commies didn't really want exactly everything she said to be said. And, uh, apparently at one point in the, during the talk, she looks at the interpreter and says, stop lying to them, tell them the <laughs> truth. And I'm like, that is BA, my friends. Yeah, that, that, that could be the gift of interpretation of tongues right there. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this Pentecost is, is the, is the reversal of Babel, right? Um, so one thing that, that Heiser uh, dives into a lot is our bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit. And this is something I think uh, we've all heard before. Um, it's a classic argument against tattoos. Is, is it? Which is always really funny. That's um, hilarious. 
be like, no, you wouldn't graffiti a temple. Um, why would you put a tattoo on your on well, your body? Maybe if the graffiti was gold and like artfully done. <laughs> that's right. Like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. But we're not talking about tattoos today. You can get them, by the way. This is yeah, that's ceremony. Talk law. for another anyway, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, Father Mike Schmitz has a great videos on tattoos. Father Mike actually. Schmitz, Ascension Presents. Yeah, that's brought right. Brought to you by caffeine. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're really interested, Google Father Mike Schmitz tattoos. Um, but yeah, so he talks about the temples of the spirit uh, and your body's being a temple of the spirit. And so we just thought it'd be, be kind of cool to, to chat a little bit about this reality of making sure we're not neglecting our bodies, right? So um, especially as Catholics, right? We're not, we're not Platonists, we're not Puritans in the sense of spirit, good, body, bad. Like you are your body. Like you're not a soul trapped in a body. Yeah, it's not as if the real part of you is this inner immaterial part yeah. that's just groaning in prison under the, the house of it. I mean, yeah. I guess it could feel like that in times of injury or sickness, sure, yeah. but uh, you are your body. Yeah. Your body is you. Yeah, and this is, we did a Theology of the Body series not too long ago, so if you want to dive deep into this, just re-listen to that series. Um, it's like a 16-week series on Theology oh, of the wow. Body. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh yeah, we went, we went deep. How many, how many body parts are there? There's a lot. Um, no. <laughs> At <laughs> but, least 16. Yeah, yeah but this is, this is part, part of the reason why this platonic tendency um, is part of the reason why we have so much gender confusion today, right? Because if you, you're not your body, then you could be a man trapped in a woman's body, like, right? You're, sure. You, or anything else, really. Yeah, really, anything mm -hmm. else. You, you believe in the world of forms, and your form was put in the wrong body. Yeah, um, right. But, uh, but Serious yeah, problem. Yeah, and so as Catholics... You know, and as authentic Christians, I would argue, is, you know, you are your body, right? You can't distinguish from your body. And so this just means taking care of your body. So um, what some people know, I don't know if everybody knows, but like I also run a Catholic fitness company. Um, and so I'm a nutrition coach, personal trainer, all these things. And so as I'm working with people, you know, and they ask, they ask me, like, hey, Chase, you know, I want to lose weight. I want to get healthy. But I'll ask them just why. Like, why do you want to lose weight, right? Because if the, if the answer is I want a six pack to look sexy, I'm like, well, I mean, that's fine. But like, it's got to be deeper than that, right? It's like you got to have a better why than that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that won't keep you in the gym very long. It will enough. not. It yeah. will not. It's mm -hmm. not a sustainable goal. Um, people with six packs don't have them very long or they just never eat or drink anything fun ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, But one of the things I try to lead people to is just this idea of the hermeneutic of gift, right? The point of taking care of our bodies, eating healthy, doing some kind of exercise, it doesn't have to be the gym, just something is because we're made to imitate Christ on the cross, right? So man finds himself through a sincere gift of self, right? Guiding him at best. And, but you can't give what you don't have, right? So having this physical discipline of, of, of taking care of your bodies because your spirit dwells, the spirit of God dwells in it, but self-mastery for the sake of self-gift, right? So you strive for this self-mastery um, because if we can't do it on a physical level, how are we gonna do it on a spiritual level, right? Um, this is a guy, French philosopher named Sir Talange, he writes a book called Intellectual Life. But anyway, he has this analogy of, you know, give me 100 men and 90 of them can dig a ditch for five hours, right? Take those 90 men, 50 of them can read an intellectual book for an hour, right? Or for two hours or whatever it is. Out of those 50 men, give me 10 and only 10 will probably be able to pray for an hour, right? So his point is basically the physical stuff is easy compared to the intellectual and then the spiritual, right? It's not, I know that, that sounds contradictory. Like, no, like maybe you really enjoy praying and you really hate working out. Um, but at the same time, that's also can be a form of a spiritual gluttony as well. Right. So, um, anyway, we're not going to dive too much into his section there. It's just important to know that our bodies are temples. right? Well, and I can illustrate this personally by talking about uh, a confession I made recently. I won't tell you the contents of the confession, <laughs> but I'll tell you about the, uh, the penance that the priest gave me. And it's really one of the best penances that I've had in recent memory. So, he said, uh, one of the best things, he, you know, he gave me the sort of laundry list of typical penances. But then after that, he said, you know, for you, you might consider 
going without one meal a week in order to discipline, um, just engage in some like concrete spiritual discipline mm-hmm. here. Some asceticism. And, yeah, and he didn't know that uh, that I hadn't. It'd been a while since I had taken up any particular kind of fasting, and so I said, yeah. "That that's really great." And so uh, he he recommended one wheel meal uh, a week, just going without that, and then whenever you feel hungry, uh, just offering that hunger to the Lord and offer it in. Um, you know, reparation for the ways that you've failed to discipline your body yeah. in the past. And, uh, you know, that, that feeling of hunger just opens you up to all sorts of, all, all the spiritual reality around you. Yeah, so. and every doctor of the church, every saint did some form of asceticism, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. some kind of bodily discipline, but not just for the sake of bodily discipline. They did it to take care of their soul, yep. right? They did it to advance themselves in the spiritual life, to detach from things of this world. Um, so like for me, I'm a huge baked goods guy. Like yeah. if baked goods are in my house, they're going to be eaten, right? <laughs> What's your um, favorite baked good? Oh, dude, cheesecake. Cheesecake. Mm, yeah, cheesecake's my weakness. Um, but, but not saying those things are bad, right? Like sweets aren't bad. Like candy's not bad. Whatever. They, these things aren't bad. But um, the more we can practice engaging our will and saying no to the corporeal things of this world, the easier or at least the more prepared we'll be to... Uh, engage our will in the, in the in the face of temptation and advice. Yeah, right? and you can when the time comes, you can enjoy that cheesecake rightly. Like you right. can you can uh, in, enjoy it the way God intended you to enjoy it, and um, praise there, God, praise there, God for what it is, namely cheese and cake. Like right. what could be what could be better than that? <laughs> well, but also it keeps you from eating the whole plate in one sitting, yeah. which is critical. Well, and there are times of feasting, right? So even like uh, Saint Francis, he was asked by one of his brothers because they, they did really intense fasting on every Friday, right? And he was asked, I think, uh, this anecdote, so I'm going to paraphrase because I don't know exactly, but basically, um, you know, it was Christmas. I think Christmas fell on a Friday, right? Um, and one of the brothers was like, hey, do we need to fast still because it's a Friday? And St. Francis is like, no, it's, it's, it's Christmas. It's a feast day. Like, we should feast, right? Um, so, like, we should be able, we should learn to fast in order that we learn to better feast, right? Because that's, I mean, as Christians, we're called to feast, right? Mm-hmm. We're, I mean, every Sunday mm-hmm. is a feast day. It's mm-hmm. a solemnity. Yep. We, should, we should party it up. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing wrong with a buffet on Sundays. That's right. So if your Sundays look like every other day of the week, change that. Yeah. Don't do that. Have two or three cheesecakes if you feel like it. And a glass of whiskey, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As long as you're not struggling with alcohol. Then, yeah. Then don't do that. But. You know, put them all <laughs> together in a blender and just, <laughs> just pound it back yeah. all at the same time. An anti-protein yeah. shake. So, um, so with the last little bit of time here, uh, Ryan and I did have a bone to pick. Yeah. So if you're gonna if you're gonna read along in this book, which we I think we we don't endorse, but we encourage, right? It's a good yeah, thing to like if you want to. A, a lot of it's a lot of it's really good for you. Just if, if for whatever reason, if for no other reason that it forces you to take a second look at parts of the Bible that you've probably been missing. Yeah. Uh, but he does get into trouble with he us does. here. Uh, uh, so on three. 38. He's talking about First Peter, and he's talking about baptism, and he wants to get away from the traditional Catholic interpretation of this, which is literally what Peter says, that right. baptism now, in fact, saves you. So he says, baptism then is not what produces salvation. Of course, as Catholics, we disagree. You could, you, I'm sure you know that. It saves in that it reflects a heart decision, a pledge of loyalty to the risen Savior. In effect, baptism in New Testament theology is a loyalty oath a public avowal of who is on the Lord's side in the cosmic war between good and evil. Uh, of course, uh, <laughs> Of course we agree with that, but not such that we would discount Peter's clear and immediate meaning, right. that like uh, Noah and the flood, um, baptism saves you as, yeah. as through water. Right? And, this, and this gets into a bit of a sacramental theology, which 
uh, we don't dive too much into on the show just because it doesn't come up all the time in, bibl- in biblical studies, but it comes up here. Um, obviously, the, sac- the, the seeds of our sacramental theology and all the sacraments are in Scripture, right? We didn't just, like, make them up. Like, yes. you know, they didn't magically just happen. So, um, so yeah, let's, we're going to briefly just talk uh, sacramental theology and sacramental grace in general. So uh, within the church teaching, you know, uh, the sacraments affect what they symbolize. So they're efficacious, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, they they are efficacious signs that of, of invisible reality, right? So, and did I say that right? Yeah. Well, they're signs that give us what they point to. Thank you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, like a stop sign just tells you to stop, but it doesn't make you stop. Right. Um, a sacrament is the next step beyond yeah, that. It makes you stop. Mm-hmm. So, when it comes to baptism, you know, the symbol is the pouring of, of water over the head, or like the dunking, or whatever. Um, so, and outwardly, it's like, oh, it symbolizes cleaning, it symbolizes uh, a change of heart and all these things, but what it also does is actually change you. So, like, it, so and this, this gets into original sin a little bit. So, people think original sin is like some dark mark on your soul, um, and that's not really what original sin is. Original sin is just the lack of the presence of God in your soul, right? That's, what, that's why the original sin got passed on from Adam down, is because Adam quite literally didn't have the grace to pass on, right? He had lost the grace of God, and you can't give what you don't have. It's not his to give. Anyway, and so when a baby is born, he's in the state of original sin. All that means is the presence of God does not literally dwell in his soul, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. when you're baptized, you that changes. You have an indelible mark on your soul, right? So that's, this is the Catholic view of, of baptism, obviously. Like your soul is literally changed. So original sin is quote-unquote washed away, not as a stain, but rather as now you have the presence of God in your soul. Yeah, yeah. So not to rip on anybody too hard here, but for my friends in the Baptist church, they have a little document called the Baptist Faith and Message, which is kind of like their catechism. And in the section on baptism, it quotes every single section on baptism in the New Testament, except for First Peter, <laughs> which is just kind of funny how that works. But uh, yeah, so baptism, far from being an empty sign or just a symbol, as if anything could be just a symbol, um, we as Catholics can actually believe what John the Baptist says, namely that we can come and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins right. and that the sign actually affects what it signifies. So there's actually less work to do in explaining away yeah. these texts when you just believe them. Yeah, even <laughs> even if, like, so a sacraments act, you know, ex apore operato is a Latin phrase. Yes. Um, and so it, they act no matter what. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, They the grace happens. Now, you can receive sacraments in a state of, of mortal sin that's called uh, sacrilege. <laughs> yeah. And so, and that's why like uh, receiving communion in a state of mortal sin is such a big deal. St. Paul says it's like heaping burning coals on your head, right? Um, and it's, But even with baptism, if somebody is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but even by an atheist who's not baptized, if, they're, if you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, even if you don't believe you are still baptized and your soul is still changed, right? It's, it's not, and I don't want to say it's like a magic spell or something like that. It's not magic. It's not a spell. Rather, it's, it's Jesus acting in the ways he promised he would act, right? Because mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. sacrament is, is literally just Jesus acting, yeah. God acting in your soul, yeah. right? And of course, babies have no belief of right. their own. Yeah, yeah. but we, we uh, perform this for them. Um, God performs it really uh, yeah. in the hopes that they'll grow into the grace right. given to them at first. Which is even why like if a priest knows that the parents aren't like super devout Catholics, he'll still baptize the baby because why wouldn't he want to baptize the baby? <laughs> like, you know, it's, uh, you know, granted the, the, the parents are saying these vows on the behalf of the baby. So even if their faith isn't where we would like it to be, 
the sacrament still acts. Like mm-hmm. Jesus, the Holy Spirit still moves. And it's really showing the humility of God, right? Not that we can command God to do anything, but rather we're, it shows the humility of God to act in the ways that he promised he would. And tying this back into Heiser, this is all a part of, I mean, if we really want to talk about spiritual warfare here, baptism is an integral part of that yeah. plan. God literally washing us clean and making us ready for the life of the world to come. Uh, I wanted to uh, read this short little section of his before we close it sure. out. Yeah. Um, this is in his section summary, and it's a good little summary of where we've come so far. He says, The kingdom of God is already a present reality, but it isn't yet fully realized. John the Baptist announced it. He introduced its king. Jesus preached its arrival and demonstrated what life in God's Edenic world could and would be like. No disease, no infirmity, no demonic opposition. The lines are drawn, the stakes are high, the enemy desperate. The fullness of the Gentiles will come, all Israel will be saved, and the deliverer will come from the heavenly Zion. It's just a matter of time. So, really good, compelling little vision there for uh, yeah. the New Testament in a paragraph. That's right. That sets us up for next week where we'll be rounding off this little book, which is exciting. It'll be fun. What should we do next? You'll find out next time. You'll on. find. Come, come, on, come back next time. Join us for Catholics with Bibles. That's we'll figure right. it out. All right, y'all. We'll take it easy. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today on Catholics with Bibles. We've just finished part seven of Mike Heiser's The Unseen Realm. Tune in next week for part eight, and then we're going to do something totally new and different and exciting. Peace. Peace.